RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 352, Hard Time. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek. Or at least we remember watching an episode of Star Trek. And then we try to remember the important parts so we can talk to each other and you about the morals, meanings, messages, and deep feelings contained within. This week, Hard Time. The one where O'Brien remembers something he didn't do and has to deal with the consequences. Fortunately, he's got a pretty good support system at home. We'll check in with Miles, Keiko, and Molly in a little while, but first I'd like to share something with you that I hope you'll remember. Mission Log relies on your participation. That's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, I know that there's something that we will remember, and that is... And it's not a 20-year span of trivia, but it is a short bit of trivia, and not less poignant, and here is John Champion. Well, thank you. How could I forget (laughs) trivia this week for Hard Time? The story is by Daniel Keyes Moran and Lynn Barker. Now, those are two brand new names for us, and I'm sorry to say that this is the only time we'll see a credit for them on any Star Trek. Daniel is by trade not only a computer programmer, but also a somewhat prolific science fiction novelist. Lynn has a handful of TV credits under her belt. Two of my favorite as a kid, Filmation's Space Academy and Jason of Star Command. They had pitched this story way back in season one of DS9, and as is often the case, it gets passed over several times until someone steps up to advocate for it. This time, it was Robert Hewitt Wolf who asked Michael Piller if they could please just buy it and produce it. Piller kept turning them down. So, in the age-old case of, if one parent says no, ask the other one, Robert asked Iris Stephen Bear, and they bought the story. So that means that the script duties fell on Robert, he gets the credit here, and he actually left a big imprint by coming up with the whole conceit of the alien prisoner, Ichar, Add to that the fact that Robert's wife is a psychotherapist in real life. Well, he was kind of perfect. And it is also worth pointing out that Ronald D. Moore had a big hand in the script and the final story development as well. This was directed by Alexander Singer, longtime Trek director. You might remember that Alexander was a fan of TOS and had been working across the lot on Mission Impossible. He didn't get to direct TOS, but he did step in finally toward the end of TNG's run during the sixth season to direct Relics. This is the last time we will see him on DS9, but don't worry, 
He rounds things out on Voyager. We'll catch up with him there for the full 10 episodes. And you may not be surprised at all to hear that Alexander Singer was very gracious about the huge amount of work that went on by Calmini for bringing the script to life. He was equally gracious and concerned, actually, about the impact on young Hannah Hate playing Molly. That was a lot of intense drama for a seven-year-old to be around, especially coming from an actor she really loved, like Colm. Alexander also points out the unique challenge brought by filming in the cell and the fight scene with Miles and Ichar, uh, played by stuntmen. Now that cell floor is covered in sand and you have a bunch of cameramen and crewmen walking around in there, then you have the actors walking around, and you've got a fight scene. So practically at every turn they had to reset and redress that to make sure the sand hadn't flown everywhere. And you had stuntmen who were playing older versions of these characters so they could have that fight. Hey, uh, Norman, question for you and for our listeners. Did you freeze frame on the weapons locker in the cargo bay? Because if you did, (laughs) when Column opens it up, you will see very clearly at the bottom of it the logo Action Packer, which is a brand made by Rubbermaid. Yes, they took a Rubbermaid Action Packer case, stuck it on the wall, and you can read the logo at the bottom of the screen. Maybe this is one of those reasons, John, that they don't want to do Deep Space Nine in HD. (laughs) HD, (laughs) yeah. You could do a little CG magic and maybe blur that out just a little bit or punch in a little on the film. But yeah, it was a little obvious, even in standard def. Let's talk about guest stars. Now, of course, we are welcoming back a few people. We have Rosalind Chow as Keiko, Hannah Hate as Molly. We also have F.J. Rio back as Muniz, and we last saw him in Starship Down. Now, early on, we meet an Argrafi played by Margot Rose. You may not recognize her under the makeup, but you have definitely seen her before. She was Eileen Cayman's wife in the inner light on TNG. Gosh, I, I wonder if thematically there's something there about implanting false memories. And finally, we meet Ichar, who is Miles O'Brien's cellmate. He's played by Craig Wasson. This might be his only Star Trek appearance, but Craig worked quite steadily since the 1970s into the mid-2000s, doing the rounds as a TV guest star, of course, but pretty quickly landing roles in some major feature films, too. Brian De Palma's body double, Spike Lee's Malcolm X. He even pops up in the third installment of Nightmare on Elm Street. You know the DS9 riders hate to hurt O'Brien, they hate to see his pain, but they don't know how to stop. No, they don't know how to stop. Prologue. Open in a prison cell, and a disheveled old man drawing patterns in the sand floor is interrupted by Argrafi guards who tell him that his time here has come to an end. It's been 20 years, and his sentence is done. The old man is Miles O'Brien, who then wakes up on an examination table as his present-day self, surrounded by the same guards and Major Kira. They explain to him that the past 20 years of incarceration are a constructed memory implanted in him as a matter of the Argrafi's more efficient penal system. 
Kira says what happened wasn't real, but O'Brien says it was real to me. Act 1. Before O'Brien and Kira make it back to DS9, Sisko breaks the news to Keiko about what happened. Her husband was accused of espionage, which we all know he wouldn't do, but before a case could be made that it was a misunderstanding, they had already carried out the sentence on O'Brien. It will have changed him, and it's unlikely that Dr. Bashir can remove the false memories. When he does arrive home, O'Brien is greeted by Dr. Bashir. Things are going to be different, and Miles will take some time to adjust back to his life. When the doctor asks if Miles was alone that whole time, he has a flashback to being thrown into his cell and greeted by a friendly alien called Ichar, who offers him some fruit. Out of the flashback and talking to Bashir, O'Brien says he was completely alone the whole time. Act 2. Dr. Bashir explains to Keiko and the audience that even though Miles' memories are fake, his experience of them and the trauma are real. He can't simply erase them without the risk of wiping his entire memory. In the infirmary, Keiko comes to see her husband, but for a second he thinks he saw her as the alien from his cell. Snapping back to reality, he remembers that she's pregnant and the two embrace. Later that night in their quarters, the O'Briens are at the dinner table, and Miles is pushing around his food, cutting it into smaller pieces and moving some of it off his plate onto a napkin. When Keiko asks, he apologized that it's a habit he picked up in prison where the guards would sometimes suspend their rations and he had to hide food. Enter into a flashback. Miles and his cellmate, Ichar, hide away some food behind a loose stone. Then Ichar gives Miles a mental exercise, geometric patterns drawn in the sand. It sparks some conversation, even a laugh, before the guard calls for lights out. The two find their places on the floor to get some sleep. Back to the present, and Keiko awakens in bed to find Miles asleep on the floor. Act 3. O'Brien is trying to find his social life again, too, hanging out at Quark's, and again there's the vision of Ichar just passing through which breaks Miles' concentration. Back at work, the chief might be a little rusty, but he's still plugging away, that is, until Bashir drops by for a visit and asks why he hasn't been to visit Counselor Talnori, as they had agreed three times a week. This makes Miles blow up, telling Bashir to butt out. Frustrations running higher, Miles has another flashback to Ichar in their cell, asking questions about Molly and raising his ire. His anger gets so out of hand that the guards warn of discipline until Ichar can physically subdue Miles. In the real world on DS9, even Quark is on the receiving end of Bashir's anger when he doesn't get his synthale fast enough. Sitting at a table, Miles is visited this time by Ichar, who speaks to him. He's his friend, and Miles needs him now more than ever. From across the bar, Quark and Odo notice Miles having a conversation with nobody at all. Act 4. Looking in a mirror, O'Brien sees Ichar again and tells him he doesn't care why he's here. He's okay. He doesn't need Ichar. Later, Sisko asks the chief about his behavior, confronting Bashir, confronting Quark, not visiting the counselor like he'd been asked. As of this moment, the chief is relieved from duty, and he'll be confined to the infirmary if he doesn't follow the doctor's orders. Storming off, 
O'Brien heads to the infirmary for an angry confrontation with Dr. Bashir. The doctor says he's his friend and just trying to help, to which O'Brien explodes that he has no idea what happened there to him in that prison. This time, though, it's not just the doctor who is pleading with O'Brien to take the help of a friend. It's Ichar standing there, too, in O'Brien's vision, telling him to not let happen here what happened back there. When O'Brien leaves again, walking down a corridor, Ichar follows and tells him that he's only there because clearly a part of Miles needs him to be there. Working his way back to his quarters, Miles is greeted by Keiko, who says she heard that he's been acting out. She knows how important work is to him, and as she's trying to talk him down, there's Molly, insistent that her father come look at a drawing she's made. When he says not now, she grows more insistent until he loses his temper and physically lunges toward her in a fit of anger. Keiko jumps in, holding Molly, and a devastated, apologetic Miles stalks off. In a cargo bay, the chief is bashing everything in sight, taking out his rage on boxes and crates until he stops long enough to open a weapons locker, pulls out a phaser, and sets it to the highest power, then places the emitter under his chin. Act 5. Quietly in walks Dr. Bashir, trying to very calmly talk his friend down. Miles says he's got to do it to protect everyone else. He's not the man he used to be. He even tried to hurt Molly. Bashir counters that he's his friend and knows that he's a good man, which Miles says sounds like something Ichar said. Who is Ichar? The cellmate Miles had for almost the entirety of his 20-year punishment. Almost. Flashback to one night in the cell. Miles and Ichar are both hungry, achingly so, and it's been a week since they ate what Miles was able to hide away. It's time to go to sleep anyway, and at some point in the middle of the night, Miles catches Ichar quietly sneaking over to another hiding place with food. Miles attacks. The two fight it out until Miles snaps Ichar's neck and goes for the food, only to realize there is enough food for both of them, and that Ichar is dead. To make it worse, the guards started feeding the prisoners again the next day. Back in the cargo hold on DS9, O'Brien is despondent telling Bashir the story and how he feels that he's failed. He killed because he'd been pushed so far and he feels like he lost his humanity. Bashir tells him that the Argrathi punished him, and that for an instant they won but here he is, racked with the pain over what he did. An animal wouldn't do that. O'Brien knows better. He is better. The image of Ichar says, Be well, Miles, and then disappears for good. Later, Bashir presents O'Brien with a hypospray. The compound won't make him forget, but it will get rid of the hallucinations and help with the depression. One more thing. He needs to see Counselor Telnori. Back at his quarters, a happy reunion. Keiko smiles as Molly yells that Daddy is home and goes to hug her father. The end. So this brings up a great question, John, and something that I want to oh, start man. off with. Okay. Who is Council Telnori and what race? <laughs> uh, look, I'm just glad that they have a counselor because so many times in ds9 i thought they need deanna troy mm -hmm. they need deanna troy. please where is deanna troy during all of this and at least they acknowledge that there is a counselor who we will never see uh but yeah i'm gonna go with um 
Mm, gosh, what would uh, uh, Andorian? Uh, no, Tellarite. I'm going to go with Tellarite. That sounds good. Very, very That's- sympathetic and sensitive to Tellarites. Totally. <laughs> totally. <Yeah. laughs> Just pick the two most volatile species on Star Trek. You know what? The, uh, <laughs> the end of uh, this reminded me a lot of the quote that I think it was in, was it in Balance of Terror? Where McCoy said, do not destroy the one named Kirk. Oh, was it? There's a million. Yeah, yeah there are yeah. a million, million galaxies yeah, yeah, and yeah. each one a million, million life forms. But yeah. do not destroy right. the one named Kirk. The, the one. Yeah. And I, and I found that yeah. that one quote very, I guess, very applicable because that's do not destroy the one named O'Brien. O'Brien, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very sweet. No, I, I, I thought of, there are other Star Trek references that I definitely thought of in this. And um didn't think of that one. That's very nice. Hey, let me pose a weird question to you. Is it better to live with a false memory or to have someone remove the false memory, but then the other people around you remember that you had it removed? Are you asking me or are you asking Rodek? Because <laughs> that's kind of, we're dancing around that same point a little bit here. In this I know, I know. And that's what's so weird about this episode is like, okay, Bashir, you just did this. Like you just did this a couple of weeks ago. You erased somebody's memory. And I know that he says, okay, well, this is a special case and I can't do this without erasing the whole thing. But, you know, there are times that we've talked about this kind of thing before. And even in the popular culture, you know, movies like Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, they, they kind of reinforce this idea, well, you need your pain, you need your memories even if they are unpleasant memories because they make you who you are. This is a very unique situation because it is a false memory, but the feeling of that false memory is real. So let's say O'Brien could just walk in and say, yeah, just that part of my brain zapped that part of my brain. But yet you go back and you read the mission logs, you talk to Kira, you talk to anybody, you talk to Dr. Bashir, and they're like, oh yeah, well, well that thing happened. I mean, it's right there in the logs. I was there with you. And uh, Dr. Bashir was like, yeah, yeah, you you totally experienced that. And I had to erase it. It seems like that would drive you mad, too. (laughs) Just never being able to remember the thing that you chose to have removed. There's always that, that subconscious level that we have when we've had a very intense dream where we believe that Mm -hmm. what we did or what happened to us was real. And I think that that's what have happened. What would have happened to to the chief if they removed that? But it really does prove that no matter how they tried to do the technology that would either you know remove the memory or try and suppress it, the brain and the mind and the brain chemistry is just too it's too intricate to try and manipulate yeah. in that way. But I, I loved how they started off the end of the prologue with that doesn't make any sense. I love how they ended the end of the prologue. With <laughs> it was real to me, yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, that really says all you need to say, yeah. you know. And, and I feel like I, I know that I have a note that I want to hit on in the next segment, kind of around all of this too. But but yeah, that that really is what's critical here: is the feeling is real. Let's talk about fun stuff. That weird circular rolling stretcher thing that Miles is on during the procedure. I just want to die. I hope that somebody on set just rolled that around the sound stage. Strap in. And just go for a ride. Wasn't that in Quark's that quarters? Like a lot of fun. <laughs> it wasn't. Or not Quark's, oh uh, in Odo's quarters. Wasn't that in Odo's. Odo's quarters? Odo's. I think it was. Oh, man. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 
I just, you know. I tried to look that up. It's like, it's not an inversion uh, chair, but it's, yeah, it's a weird thing. And I'm just saying, it looks like fun. So, you know, somebody bring one to STLV. It'll be great. Also, uh, I'm not sure what's going on with that kind of weird patchy pattern on O'Brien's mustache and beard in the opening. Like, later you get a better shot of it. And maybe it's just video compression and low resolution. But it just looks like he tried to pull a Man Ray, and it looks like half of it's just gone at a certain point. It could just be bad video. I I literally have no leg to stand on when it comes to that. (laughs) None at all. It's okay. It's okay. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was um, because we know where O'Brien and Bashar are in their relationship uh, is when he kind of blew up at Julian. Uh, yeah. At the same time, though, and I know that we may be poked a little bit of fun at this at the beginning of our discussion here on observations, but I think that Miles really kind of shirked his personal responsibility of going to the counselor. They made a big deal about saying, you got to go to this counselor, Tell Nori. They keep repeating that name, Counselor Tell Nori. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. So, what if this, you know, I'm going to post this to you and, and to the listeners. What if they did this? What if it was possible to have had Marina Sirtis just on set for a really short amount of time at the end talking to him as Counselor right. Troy? Oh, that, that would have been lovely. Yeah. Or even on video. Something. Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Subspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would have been amazing. Hey, I have to point out food here because that's my thing. Um, can't really tell what they're eating in prison. Doesn't look great. But on the O'Brien's dinner table, they have quite a spread. There appears to be like some chicken cutlets or something like that. Maybe a pork loin, you know, the other white meat. Looks like a grain of some sort. Not quite rice, but, but something else on that uh, plate there. But in the fruit bowl... Very glad to see that there is some star fruit because they're in space after all, and I've been missing some uh, some spacey fruit. So they have star fruit. Good for them. When when Miles uh, took uh, the, the the final like kind of uh, the little napkin of food uh, in his cell, I wasn't sure exactly what that was. It almost kind of they looked like rocks. They didn't really yeah, look like food. They did, right? I'm sure that it was like stale bread and stale food. I mean, whatever they were eating was better than eating nothing at all. But I just wasn't sure at the end, like what I thought he made a mistake. And I thought that's where he was going with that. It's like, oh, I killed him over nothing. But yeah, it was really right. Food. Right. I thought they were going there too. Yeah. But uh, it, it did. It looked like rocks, like a quarry breakfast cereal. That's right. It tastes better <laughs> because it's mine. Wow. Going deep SNL. Yes. It was a deep cut deep, for deep, all of deep. you. Uh, I did like yeah. uh, the scene where where Miles was kind of trying to get back into his life playing darts with Worf because Worf I know probably hates darts and socializing <laughs> right. and making friends, but it is the chief. Yes, yeah, and, and that's yeah. where the idea of maybe having Troy come back at the end because it was nice seeing that he had friends from his past care for him. Right. So I thought that would have been yeah. an interesting uh, cameo, obviously for Deanna, and uh, it was nice seeing Worf really trying to be sympathetic and being a friend because that's not his yeah. strength but he was doing the best that he could <laughs> i also liked seeing jake uh, his little uh kind of uh on the spot quiz trying to get the chief back his brain back into work and saying you know what's this tool what's that tool and just trying to normalize things yeah, you know what I liked about that scene? Because it's one of those things where, you know, we've talked about how the actors have contractual obligations. They have to be in a certain number of episodes. But Jake, Nog, you know, particularly when you have young people on set, they don't get as many scenes anyway. 
this was a really nice way to have a short scene, but not make it about either Jake's problem or Jake's relationship with his father. It, it was just like a totally different angle on a relationship that we haven't seen. So I, I definitely appreciated that. And speaking of people we hadn't seen in a while, Muniz. I, I, that was so good to, you know, I, I like that DS9 will bring back people. I mean, TNG did it every now and then. Of course, the great Tracy Lee Coco as Lieutenant J, you know, she would show up every now and then. But Munoz were actually getting to know a little bit, and he's got a personality and, and lines. <laughs> you know, this is cool. I'm, I'm a little bummed that this is the second of what is only three appearances for him. I like seeing him, but, too. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. And by the way, I mentioned the, the little trivia about the weapons locker. Uh, surely you noticed the big number 47 on that uh, weapons locker. It has had to make it weapons locker number 47. Now, is the 47th one in that room? Because it's a lot of weapons lockers or 47th around the station. Because each one has six phasers in it. It's a lot of phasers around that station. It's an interesting thing that there were, what, six, maybe eight phasers in that locker in a cargo mm -hmm. bay? I know, right? It's like we're just expecting at any moment there could be weapons fire in this cargo bay. There could be a serious fight. I mean, I get it. I mean, they wanted to make a point, but two could have sufficed. Just yeah. saying. Truly. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the whole... The whole, you know, uh, trial of, of Miles putting, uh, being put through a compressed time stream in that reality, uh, did he really live that 20-year sentence? You know, that's, that's mm. the kind of like question that everyone's kind of being asked, especially those who are outside observers. But now he's dealing with integrating that into like his truest reality. Isn't this what happened to Kern? Like, isn't that what they were trying to do with him in Rodak to try and mm. force this new reality into him? And everyone that's standing around him saying that, oh, when Kern finally wakes up as Rodek, everything's okay. This is your new reality. This is what you have to live with. Right. It's a weird thing. Right. It's a weird thing that we're going back to this whole neural manipulation so, I guess, so quickly in between episodes because uh, the Sons of Moog wasn't that, that far away. It was like just a couple episodes before this. Yeah, it, it's strange to have those two so close to each other. Where, as we see in science fiction, you know, mind erasing, mind manipulation could just be sort of used as a magic bullet or as this piece of horror as well. Yeah, it's almost like it's too easy in, in many respects. The other thing that kind of bugged me a little bit about what happened with the chief, even though that his 20-year incarceration was in his mind, per se, quote-unquote, Nowhere along that time did he admit to or make a point of that the Federation was trying to extradite him for his crime or for being a Federation oh. citizen. So essentially when he comes to and when he realizes what happens to him and now he's living his life again in real time, does he feel that, okay, if I were captured by an alien government, would my friends come to try and rescue me? Whoa. Wow. Yeah, you have to wonder about that. Like Kira's right there. And you would think, like, is she watching this whole procedure take place? She can't do anything about it. But is she offering suggestions like, uh, hey, you know, you're uh, you're 10 years into this. Can we just put in a thing where, like, a Federation ambassador shows up? Just just make a show of it, please, to make us look good. Could you? Nobody made an appeal for parole or 
this is a Federation citizen that you have illegally incarcerated. Right. So I found that just a little strange that the Federation, with all of its might, didn't make an attempt to at least uh, negotiate for his release. In the criminal justice system, O'Brien is represented by two separate yet equally important groups. Oh, wait, no he isn't. This is O'Brien we're talking about. All right, Norman, during the break we were talking about one of our favorite movies, and you told me in his voice what I had to do, where I had to go. Get your ass to Mars. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Yes, because Total Recall, of course, is a, there's a bit of Total Recall that we have to swallow right up front in this one, which is fine. I love that movie. I think it's, um, I think it's a cool concept, mostly because what's, what's so intriguing to me in that, and, and it's something that I've brought up on Mission Log a few times before, is how our memories are not only incredibly unreliable, but also incredibly easy to manipulate. You you can make people remember or misremember all kinds of things. And we we touched on it a little bit in the last segment. I won't go too much into it here other than just say, everybody who can hear me, I really encourage you to look up Professor Elizabeth Loftus, who is probably the foremost expert on false memories and memory manipulation. I just heard a terrific interview with her on Point of Inquiry podcast, and you can find her on many other shows as well. Um, But it it really gets to the heart of this, is that you can take somebody who had an experience, a well-documented experience, and quite easily have them sort of change their perception of that experience, change the emotional weight of that experience, change their whole the, their whole sort of take on what actually happened to them. So it's fascinating stuff. Really recommend that uh, if you want to dig further, you can, uh, you can do that there. Um, but I, I, I thought that was, you know, I immediately thought of Total Recall. Like, here's the science fiction trope. It's a machine. We do a thing. We compress the memory. We stick it in you. It only takes a few minutes or, in Miles's case, a few hours. And then there's 20 years worth of memory to pull from because memory is, is a process of your brain. It's not simply playing the videotape back every time you want to access that. But there's a there's another, well, really the central part of this episode, something that's very important that, to be quite honest, I feel a little overwhelmed and a little underprepared to talk about, which is that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that's really what's on display here. And I, I don't feel like I can bring any deep, meaningful or or insightful angle on this other than to say that is what they're grappling with and there are many fine you know books films tv shows plays etc that try to deal with this try to get into the head of somebody who is going through that is gut-wrenching to see miles lose his sense of identity and worse to see him sort of lose that feeling of love and support that he has from his family and friends, to not be able to feel like he can trust them or trust himself around them. It's tragic. I mean, this episode is full of tragedy. And I guess sort of the only, there, there are a couple of silver linings 
around all of that. Uh, but we're we're watching his descent and watching all these moments that have this terrible weight on him. And I think that's why bringing up that observation of the Federation not coming to his rescue in any form may mm-hmm. have, in a way, reestablished some type of either disappointment or mistrust in in his uh, ability to or inability to reconnect with his friends when he came out of this this mentally um uh, i guess manipulated incarceration yeah because the only person that he could trust and the person that he ended up murdering his friend for 20 years Ichar was the only one really that was trying to reestablish that that connection of trust and trying to help him heal even though that there are all these different layers that are being peeled away at O'Brien and eating away at him at the time. Isn't that interesting, though, that, you know, the whole thing is a construct. The whole thing is a program. So Ichar is part of that program. He's part of that construct. So the, the, the Argrathi had to come up with a way to insert into their program this thing the this this subroutine for lack of a better word that tries to hold on to the humanity of the subject you, you know i i what would be the purpose of doing that i wonder i mean well i i've got a, a whole other thing about how they carry out their <laughs> their <laughs> their their version of punishment anyway but yeah that just struck me that like they're they're building this system that really tortures the person who is on the receiving end of it, but there's still this shred within it that has humor, that has generosity, that has compassion, that has curiosity, that has all these positive traits that you wouldn't think would be a part of it. Well, that's why I think the character of Ichar is actually really fascinating because they did not have to do that. You know, the Agrathi did not have to implant that particular subroutine in this process, in this memory. I mean, think about what he did. He created and forged this friendship. He said at one point in time, Ichar was his best friend and his only companion in the course yeah. of a 20-year, nearly 20-year incarceration. But then he ends up murdering him over something so savage as hunger. And for those people that are the outside looking in, they don't know that he's just a figment. He's more than that to Miles. He's more than just this this construct of what happened to him. To Miles, he was real. To Miles, yeah. he was someone that he needed to depend on to survive. Ichar taught him survival techniques. He taught him how to to not go insane. He taught him humor. He taught him those the the mental technique to to keep him distracted from going crazy in his solitary. Right. Well, it, it is sort of an interesting point of these unknowns that um, we're not sure how much of Miles' psyche fills in the blanks where there's the construct, there's the, the, the cell, there are the guards, there's this routine, there, there's this sense of time. But... We don't know if Miles's brain fills in a lot of missing information. So that might also be part of just what he needed to get through, even though HR is part of the program. 
I mean, we, we really don't know. And really, that raises a, a question about what the Argrafi guards are doing or what, what this prison system is doing. Do they know how it behaves on a non-Argrafi citizen? Because they just sort of decide in this very compressed amount of time, like, oh, okay, well, here, we caught him doing this. We find him guilty. We're going to punish him according to our system of punishment. And it's done before anybody can say anything about it. You know, that brings up a really good point and something I didn't consider, John. So I'm going to pose this question to you. I'm going to pose it to the listeners. Is it possible that during the course of the Agrathi incarceration, this mental manipulation, that the one thing that Miles says at the end that he thought when he was losing his humanity, that he thought that we as humans evolved further than the savagery that he was perpetrating upon Ichar, was mm-hmm. Ichar a, fi- um, a construct of his humanity trying to save himself? Something that they didn't expect that would manifest inside right. that, that program. And the guards or the torture are just constructs of the savagery that was trying to remove that last bit of humanity that Ichar represented. And in murdering Ichar, he took away that last layer that protected him from becoming the true savage that he thought he turned into. Right. Right. Well, so let, let me pose this question then about their system of crime and punishment. I mean, look, our systems on Earth in the 21st century are imperfect, to say the least. What happened, I wonder, in this alien society where they decided that with the technology they have, it would be better to give someone the experience of punishment for 20 years rather than, say, the experience of rehabilitation or education for 20 years. Like, this seems like an incredibly powerful tool, and yet we use it to torture somebody, to punish someone for 20 years. I mean, presumably, people leave the experience broken and worse off the way that Miles did. He was broken after this was over. And look, I I agree with the premise that the Argrafi state at the top, which is prisons are are wasteful and the time could be spent better doing something else, being more productive. So that person is only under that punishment for a few hours. And then look, they have all this real time to go be productive. And we're not just taking up room by throwing people into prisons and leaving them there. But this also seems like a weird lust for punishment. It's like, okay, no matter what, no matter how advanced we get, and again, it's Star Trek, so the aliens are us, (laughs) you know, no matter how far advanced we get, and no matter what technology is at our disposal, we're going to use it to punish someone, to turn the screws on someone and make them feel awful. Like they've had this for 20 years instead of saying, wow, we can condense all of this down into a few hours where, yeah, yeah, maybe they feel terrible for what they did, but they can also be rehabilitated. They get to also come out of this with uh, uh, a, a better sense of empathy and compassion for their fellow beings. Like there's absolutely no indication that this is something that they do. 
Well, I think the one thing that was a little on the weaker side was not understanding the Agrathi and their sense of justice and the punishment fitting the crime. Going all the way back to TNG's justice, we understand why Wesley was going to be put to death because there were clear signs that said, yeah. do not touch these flowers. These flowers are sacred. And if you do, this is the pe- you get the death penalty. So sure. all sure. we know of these Agrathi is that Miles asked a couple of questions they were uncomfortable with. Therefore, they turned him to a spy. Therefore, espionage was the crime. Therefore, 20 years of incarceration that he has to live with when he finally comes out and lives in real time. It, it kind of undermines why they did what they did and poses too many questions as to why Miles had to suffer such a harsh penalty to the point where he was going to kill himself. I, I just don't really feel that there was a really good connection between the sentence and how it fits the crime. Because what he almost did to himself, he almost widowed his wife and he almost orphaned his daughter in a way. So because of what? Because of a couple of questions? Yeah. Like, I don't get that. Yeah, you really have to. Like, what what is their equivalent of life in prison then? If they have such a thing. Like, there's a worse offense. So Miles's offense was asking a couple of inappropriate questions to them. You know, Mm -hmm. he he was completely clueless and and didn't mean anything. Um, But somebody else murders somebody. And what do you do? Do you hook them up for a few hours to this machine? And then they think that they have been punished until the end of their lives and they they die in prison or they're executed or whatever they have but then you unplug them and go oh no no no, that was just a simulation that's what it feels like what do you accomplish other than just creating another completely broken shell of a person at that point right and i think that's where I'm, i'm struggling with this episode a lot because what miles did earned him 20 years of near solitary confinement with, you know, somebody who he ended up befriending and then murdering, mm. which obviously has, you know, huge uh, repercussions on him in real time. But that's just a, it just sounds to me like a small, uh, a grievance, you know, to the Agrathi. Imagine if like he actually accidentally killed somebody. Yeah. Well, what if he ran on their flowers? Exactly. What then? And then (laughs) now, still to that point, why didn't the Federation do like, I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe they wanted to just completely isolate him. I don't know. It's just it was just weird that. um, I mean, we don't know. Like I said, and I was joking about it, but I mean, Kira could have been there as his advocate as all this was going down saying, whoa, hey, wait, we, we have to get somebody here before you exact this punishment on this person. I I have to get somebody else to come in and uh, and try to defend him. We have to try to stop this. We don't understand your laws, your technology, et cetera, et cetera. There could have been any other number of uh, of possibilities leading up to that. But what we got is this, you know, insane mental torture. So let's talk about the big monologue. I mean, first of all. It's such a powerful scene. Uh, Colomini is just unbelievable in this role, and how how cool it is that we've 
gotten to watch him grow from next gen into the the real central player that he is here in ds9 that monologue about uh, humanity being evolved and he says i was no better than an animal i i get what he's saying and at the same time i kind of wonder is this something we would have gotten on tng the answer is no because we're getting it here we didn't get it on tng but did it feel at all to you sort of like ds9 making sure again that we all know what's wrong with star trek what what's wrong with the idea of saying that well we're evolved we're better than that we we don't have these base impulses you know because part of me sees that as a takeaway here part of me sees that as o'brien saying yeah i was fed these lies about how we're evolved and we're better and we've grown beyond our our base needs but when i'm really put to the test i'm not Mm -hmm. and i i think there's something disturbing about that and there's also something look i'm not denying that there's something real about that but i don't know I, I don't know if that's the kind of thing that we would have ever heard if Star Trek, Star Trek had just sort of hummed along the way it was from TOS to TNG. This is a big departure. Okay, but but before I get the, uh, the comments online, <laughs> there is another part of me that wants to see this as fitting in very nicely. And I thought of two scenes, actually. One being Kirk saying that He's barbarian, but he chooses not to kill, not to kill today. You know, and every day he, he's got to go through that to make sure that he is better than his base desires, his, his, his knee-jerk reactions, that he's got to be that more evolved person. The other part of me thought about uh, Chain of Command, Chain of Command Part 2, where you've got Picard tor- tortured by Gul Darheel, and fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, and seemingly, even after all that torture, being himself and being okay until he got to that last scene. And he tells Deanna Troy, like, I was ready to crack. I was ready to just say what he wanted so I wouldn't be tortured anymore. Mm-hmm. So even our heroes can have their armor deemed a little bit. I don't know, I... I, I really recognize the humanity in in that moment and in what O'Brien is saying. I'm also trying to sort of square it with what else I've seen in Star Trek and what else I think or want to think Star Trek's messages are. I'm going to save you from some emails and I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to make a slight correction to what you were saying. It was Gull Madrid, not Gull Darheel. In oh, Gull Go, Go Madrid, of course. The Darheel yeah. is a, a duet. Maritza, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, do not send John the emails. Yes, um, I, I, you know, John. Here's the thing, and I, something that's been plaguing me, and and maybe the listeners have picked up on this on on both the way that you've been talking about this episode, and I've been talking about this episode in this in this podcast. Because normally, I feel like my my understanding of the episode and my ability to discuss it in a more coherent and in a, in a more of a streamlined way is because I understand my feelings about that episode and understand what I want to say about it. And I'm completely in tune 
with my emotional connection of what's happening. This episode has really put me at odds with a great many things. It discombobulates a lot of my thoughts, and you may have picked up on it. The listeners may have picked up on it as I was trying to to form some of my opinions. Even though that we have notes, we're still kind of reacting on what the impact was on this episode. And what you said is very true. It's very difficult to try and discover where we are in this episode when it comes to Star Trek. Yeah. It's very difficult. And I'm going to save those thoughts for our final discussion. But one of the things that really just kind of plagued me about how I was going to, to try and illustrate my thoughts is the scene in the cargo bay. Everything in this episode Mm. was kind of moving in the right direction. You know, the chief was struggling with post-traumatic stress, the idea of this, of this mental incarceration plaguing him and the frustration that he's taking out on his friends. Friends will forgive. Family will forgive. There are things that are working here on a very realistic basis. But then there was that scene where he powered up the phaser. Yeah. And that, to me, it really... I stopped watching it and really had to collect myself. Hmm. And I had to see, in my mind's eye... Is this the way that Star Trek now is being presented to me in real time since I have not seen Star Trek to this point in total because Deep Space Nine is not in my wheelhouse? Yeah. Did it cross a line? Did it show us something different? And is now Star Trek becoming something different? And do I have to accept that? I'm not going to answer that yet. The other thing is... Why at this particular time, why this character and why are we going down this road of all of these different stories of mental manipulation and introducing these new personalities into these different characters? We saw that with Kern and that was on a different level, but the same effect. And now we're seeing it with O'Brien. Why are we doing that in Star Trek? Where is the reason? What's the purpose? I'm trying to figure that out to see like... Mm -hmm. Why is this important to Star Trek storytelling at this time? And I'm trying to imagine myself back in the late 1990s when this came out. Was it something that was happening then? Was it something that they were trying to say about the the social political time at that time in, in, in Star Trek? I, I just don't know. It plagues me, John. It really does. It really bothers me that I can't put my finger on what about this episode I really like? And what about this episode that will change my perception of Star Trek as we move forward? O'Brien's digging in the dirt. Stay with him. He needs support. But are there any helpful messages in this episode? You know, John, one of the most difficult things about what we do here on Mission Log is to take what we have discussed in the previous segments and really try and understand what are the morals and meanings and messages. And in this case, in this episode, in Hard Time, I don't know about you, but I think it's one of the most difficult episodes of Star Trek that you and I have talked about. And I'd really like to see where you land on this. So please, with all the listeners and with me, share us where you are now during our dissection into the morals, meanings, and messages. 
So this one is a challenge, yeah. And um, I, I think the strengths of this episode, they really all come down to the actor, you know. And, and it's not to diminish anybody else on the show in this particular episode or any of the episodes, but Colomini really shines here. It really is about him. It's about his journey and showing this this mental struggle on screen just laid bare and he's wonderful and raw and very real with it um which is it's a big change of pace for star trek (laughs) for sure seeing something like this now i'm really glad that at the end of the episode they did not pull a magic mind erase like they did in sons of moog because it's it's much more human and much more genuine when you realize that you're doing a story about post-traumatic stress and you say to the audience, hey, there are things that can help, but there's not a simple cure. There's not just a, a, a magic bullet. And then look, the trauma goes away and all the depression that comes with it is just gone. You know, So telling that story the way that they did, I thought was very well done. And and they managed to do that all in, you know, the 45 minutes it takes to tell a singular Star Trek episode. And even though it kind of is this trope of O'Brien must be punished, well, I hate to say it, but he's awfully good. And I can't think about who else really would be the right person if you're going to tell this story. So they probably made the right choices all along there. So, I, look, I can say the episode holds up. I can say it works well. I can say the acting is fantastic. The directing is fantastic, etc. That That all just sort of is right there and is very apparent. But I'm very curious to hear where the rest of our conversation goes because I think I'm coming to a similar place that you are, which is to say, okay, how exactly is this a part of Star Trek? Because what I what I see when I read comments from other Star Trek fans is, and it's not just simply divided into two camps, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of different opinions coming to the table here, but people sort of asking, you know, is DS9 so great, is it the best Star Trek because it's so real? And, you know, keep using those words, you know, oh, it's real. It's just so realistic and raw. And that makes it better than all the other Star Trek. And look, I want my characters to be realistic. I want them to be relatable. But I also want it to feel like Star Trek. And maybe to me, Star Trek is something that I got from the original series or from Next Gen. And it's sort of those morals, meanings, messages that aspiring to to this sort of evolved, better humanity that is really exciting to me. And then I look at this and I go, wow, this is just tragic. This guy just got tortured and messed up and just left, hung out to dry. Now, the other side of that is that maybe if this had happened or something similar had happened to this on Next Gen, we would have felt like, oh, you know what, they really try to wrap it up too easily. Because in this episode, somebody talked to Counselor Choi for a few minutes, and then they're all better, and we just move on and never talk about it again. At least in this, we got acknowledgement that 
you know, that O'Brien has been through a lot. But, but at the end of the day, what are we saying here that is part of the Star Trek world? You know, mm-hmm. I, I can, I can see many other stories told in many other places about people who are tortured and then have the mental anguish that comes after that. Mm-hmm. So why, why here? You know, yeah, Norman, maybe you can enlighten me a little. Well, I think you and I are on on similar pages here because the scene that really just made me struggle a lot with this episode is when the chief had the phaser at his chin and he was Mm -hmm. contemplating suicide in Star Trek. And to me, that was so profound because up until this point, at least where major characters are concerned, I have never seen a character, a major character, put him or herself in this position where they had or they felt like they had no way out. There, yeah. were, there was no way out. There was no counseling. There was no friendship. There was no love. There was no family. There were no other avenues aside from suicide. Right. And that to me was very disturbing, very disturbing. And uh, I'm trying to like piece my thoughts together because usually we write down notes and we go off script a little bit, but I really need to read what I have written because it was so hard for me to try and find what I wanted to say. And I said, when the chief pulled the phaser from the locker and pointed it at his neck, for me, this crossed a line. That in this supposed more evolved future of humanity that someone, especially with all of the ways that Miles had to find help or for those to help him, that suicide would be his only option. After all, this is Star Trek and subverts what I've always believed about the vision of a nobler expectation of a future humanity. Is this what I should expect from Star Trek as interpreted through the filter of Deep Space Nine? Is this now Star Trek supposed to mirror humanity with these new grim realities of war, of torture, of punishment, post-traumatic stress, and attempts at suicide? Is this now what I should expect? I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying that is this what I am supposed to now retool my expectations for Star Trek? And is that what this episode is supposed to be doing for me? I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with that. But at the same time, I'm not opposed to it. I just need to know why I'm going to embrace it. And I can't yet describe that. I don't know where the right balance is, Norman. And and maybe that's where the the difficulty is uh, for me, for you. There is a balance that I want to see where I don't want stories that are dumbed down. I don't want stories that feel phony and emotionally irrelevant. And sometimes in Star Trek is at its worst, that has happened, where you're just telling a story just to have action. You know, there isn't something human or emotionally relevant in there. But at the same time, I want Star Trek to be better. I want it to be aspirational. I want it to give us something to shoot for. And I can get stories about trauma and post-traumatic stress and the grim realities of war, as as you put it, elsewhere. I, I can. I think Star Trek has this very unique way of telling stories where it feels like 
somewhere along the line, some people just decided like, yeah, you know, the, the way we told those stories before, that, that just doesn't work. And, and it's like we're going to go out of our way to thumb our nose at that. That said, particularly into fourth season of Deep Space Nine, I think these are really well-told stories. They're well-written stories. They're well-acted stories. They're well-produced stories. There is no question about it. And there are great emotional truths here. But, you know, I've been asking myself this on this show and on uh, panels at, at conventions and all. Is it Star Trek? Is, it, is this what my expectation should be, as you just put it, of what Star Trek is? It's very difficult to reconcile because we're all coming at this with different interpretations of what that answer is. And I like to think that I usually make a case for Star Trek being a very big tent for a lot of different people and perspectives and ideas to come hashing out in this entertaining system that's set up, this, this, this entertaining format that's been set up. But sometimes when things get really out of step, I've got to reassess that. It's interesting for me to say all of this because I know that we've gotten comments recently, whether you know online or reviews, whatever. It's like, oh, they're they're just too light about you know uh, too uh, uh, too much fanboying out on Star Trek. It's like, no, no, no. We've we've had a lucky run where there have been some great episodes. This is still a great episode. You have to ask yourself though, is this great because it's a great episode of TV? Or is this great because somehow it is great Star Trek when we're using Star Trek in big, bold letters mm -hmm. and, and defining what Star Trek is? Mm -hmm. Star Trek is a lot about the human condition. It's a lot about humanity. But Star Trek, as you so eloquently put, Norman, posits this future where it says humanity actually has so much of it figured out humanity has the ability to reach out to each other to make sure we don't end up in situations like this i don't know i'm very torn i'm very very torn about this episode again i'll say that it holds up because yes it is just well made well produced well acted but i'm trying to reconcile this with my take on what star trek is or is not what about morals, meanings, messages? So I know that this may strike a chord with some people, either for good or ill. But I have to be honest. I don't think that our listeners deserve any less than my full honesty. And this may, this may not sit well with some people. Because I really do try and find the most positive aspects of every single episode that we talk about and try and make a case for those positive aspects. But again, as I said before, this one really just, it troubled me. It plagued me. So when I say this, I say this with the, the truest intent of trying to be constructively critical about this episode. This is the first time, I think, that I have watched Deep Space Nine or Star Trek in general as a whole, and I found it profoundly not Star Trek. This episode can be seen as a great piece of science fiction. We've seen this in science fiction or drama or fiction, say like Homeland, where you know Nicholas Brody, played by Damian Lewis, is plagued by post-traumatic stress disorder and manipulated in certain ways because of that. That is great for Homeland or great for other shows, CSI dramas or other types of fiction 
But that's not what I want from Star Trek. I'm not saying that what I want is right. I'm just saying that that's not what I come to expect. It's a great piece mm-hmm. of science fiction, but at its core, for me, it's not Star Trek. Or at least that's not what I thought at first, because I had to let this episode settle. Ask yourself if you could see any other character on any previous Star Trek series winding up where Miles O'Brien does in this episode. That's a great question. And maybe, maybe in the next generation, possibly Jordy. Maybe. Hmm. Obviously not Data, because Data has an out for everything. But I think they chose Miles because Miles had so much immediacy at stake. He had Keiko and Molly, right? He had a family that was going to be affected by it, which was very immediate and very, very, uh, a very real risk that was happening to him. But, and, and like, you know, like what you're saying, when you see loved ones like Miles from the perspective of Keiko or the perspective of his daughter or his friends, when you see them suffer and those who care for them never give up, never give up on trying to save them, never give up on trying to do the right thing by them, no matter the cost, how personal that cost is doing that and seeing that is seeing humanity at its finest, which is very true to star Trek. Mm -hmm. So amongst or amidst all of this darkness and despair and trying to filter through all of that, maybe that's the message that I land on in this episode. That no matter the cost, you have to do the right thing and stand by the people that you love. No matter mm. what they're going through or how hurt they are, or no matter what it costs to you, you have to stand the line and make sure that the people that you love are safe and protected. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. It just isn't as clear to me as very many other episodes. So... Perhaps maybe it could have ended on a more positive note where, say, Miles was drawing with Molly because Molly wanted to draw with her father the entire episode. Mm -hmm. And maybe he could have put his demons to rest where he finished his Asika with Molly and Molly asking her father, where did you learn that, daddy? And then Miles would say, from a friend, sweetheart. From a friend. See, that they they just they drop the whole thing with the uh, Asika. They dropped it early on, just so it was something that they were doing in the cell, and then the the decontamination comes through and wipes it out. So mm-hmm. it's just a creative outlet for them. But they missed an opportunity to tie that in. You ah, look, I'm not saying you fixed the whole episode, but that would have been an incredible payoff. Get get Robert Hewitt Wolf on the phone. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that that would have been fantastic. Nice. I mean, look, I'll say that as far as any other message that I picked up, you know, Miles goes through this trauma, and then he he's taking it out on himself. He's taking it out on everyone around him. He he refuses to go see the counselor. He refuses the help that's offered to him. And I know that. It's so much easier said than done, but go to the counselor. Go take mental health seriously. Talk to someone. Work with a professional. It's not just for people who have been through trauma and are working through uh, depressive episodes or or chronic depression or something like that. It, It really is 
so incredibly important to get that part of our lives examined and thought through, you know? So I, I, I liked seeing some resolution there, even if it was grudgingly that, that Miles is finally going to go see that counselor who I'm just going to assume that we're never going to meet on DS9. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. On our website, and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you will find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files for daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Shattered Mirror. I wonder if O'Brien ever goes to the Holler Suite and runs a program about a typical boring day in Transporter Room 3. Those were the good old days. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.